uh, we are considering the gospel of freedom. Uh, and we're moving today into Paul's testimony uh, as he continues to, uh, to take a strong stance uh, in regards to his authority as an apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, and this is an important section uh, that we can often sort of breeze through because he's giving a lot of background information. We're like, how does this apply to my life? Uh, but when Paul gives his testimony, I want us to be thinking in terms of, uh, of our own testimonies, of God's gracious call upon our lives, his movement, his initiative of love toward us, and that we would each realize that, that one of the most powerful tools uh, in being a witness to the gospel of freedom is our personal testimonies of how Jesus Christ has transformed our life. One of the big themes that we're going to be seeing within this text in verses 11 to 24 uh, is what Tozer in his beautiful book, The Pursuit of God, uh, refers to as prevenient grace. And we need to keep ourselves rooted in the gospel when we think in terms of our own response to God's calling upon our lives. Because it's often presented to us that we are called to make a decision for Jesus. And we'll see through Paul's own testimony that it seemed to be Jesus making a decision about Paul. And how do we reconcile that strange paradox and tension that we find in Scripture, which is God's sovereignty, or his, as I like to define sovereignty, his freedom to do what he wants in accordance to his character, his purposes and plans, and human responsibility. And so I like what Tozer says about this. He says, we pursue God because and only because he has first put an urge within us that spurs us to the pursuit. The impulse to pursue God originates with God. And then he goes on to say, God is always previous. I think that that's a powerful statement. Uh, this is Luther's uh, argument in his book that I'm halfway through right now, which is a very dense book and not always easy to read and can feel at times archaic, but his argument in uh, the bondage of the will. Uh, a lot of people can read Luther as basically saying that man has uh, essentially no freedom, but Luther actually wasn't interested in how we live out horizontally in regards to our freedom. Uh, he, what he was interested in is humanity's inability to reach God in their own effort. And so in that sense, we are all slaves to sin, and it requires God's divine initiative in Jesus. Uh, Luther wasn't concerning himself with how we live out our daily lives amongst people. He's saying, listen, you're not going to live appropriately this way until you realize that it takes God reaching down this way to set us free. And so what I want us to see is this, this tension uh, and, and to think in terms of what is our witness? Because I like this. Uh, if we were to look at the first statement, we can go here. In, in verses 11 and 12, Paul says this is so powerful. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So even here we see God's initiative at work. Paul 
in arguing for his apostolic authority. And when I say apostolic, I mean a capital A apostolic. That he, like the apostle Peter, actually received his commission directly from Jesus. And here we see those beginning steps of initiative. Paul says, listen, I received the gospel that I gave to you directly from Jesus Christ. I did not receive it from the Jerusalem council, but God intervened into my life. And what we need to understand today is that the gospel, number one, is received by divine revelation. God must intervene. Number two, that we are called and commissioned by his sovereign, that is his free grace. And number three, that it is confirmed by community. And that's what we're going to explore today. So beginning here in this reception by revelation, uh, when we look at this this statement of Paul, uh, we need to remember that, that Luke himself uh, affirms Paul's own testimony in Galatians. In, Luke, uh, in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, uh, Luke writes of, of Saul, who is Paul, uh, of his conversion. And he says exactly what happened. He says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men, who are the men who are traveling with them stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So Luke records Saul's divine intervention, that God reaching into Saul's life, God through Jesus's decision for Saul. And this is, this is important for us to see that there is a reception by revelation. And so what is he trying to do? Paul's own testimony here, uh, he's trying to show us that God, as Karl Barth says, and I would argue this not just for, for Paul, but I would argue it for each of us, God is thought and known when in his own freedom, God makes himself apprehensible. God is always the one who has made himself known to man in his own revelation. Now, Paul is claiming a unique authority over the churches that he planted in Galatia because he was established as a capital A apostle. And there's actually much, as we'll consider in just a few moments, uh, about Paul's calling and commission that is in line with the prophetic call that we see in the Old Testament. There's a unique way that Jesus reveals himself to Paul and, and gives him the authority to preach the gospel. He even says to Ananias, go and lay hands on, on Paul, um, who is blind, who is waiting for instruction, uh, for I have chosen him to be a vessel of the gospel to the Gentile nation. And he says, and he will suffer much for my namesake. So, so Saul's conversion and his commission were very closely linked in a very unique way. And most of us were not, um, I would argue that none of us were blinded on a road, blinded by the light. Who sings that song? I just heard it last night. It's, yeah, 
just bad. It's bad, but it's so catchy. And that's the only song that they will ever be known for. We know the song, not the band name. It doesn't matter. But that's not how most of us experience conversion. But I will say this, that regardless of whether it was through a preacher preaching the gospel or whether it was through a, some sort of miraculous divine intervention, like my, like my friend uh, in, in Iran who Jesus literally spoke to her, my friend Nestoron, uh, in a place where the gospel was not available in a Muslim family and, and revealed himself to her and unbeknownst to her that her sister had been saved while going to school in Europe and someone gave her sister a word that she needed to go back and share the gospel with her family and she got back and walked into Nestoron's bedroom and Nestoron said, I know you're here to tell me about Jesus. I believe in him. And then her sister preached the full gospel to her. Her mom and herself gave their faith and allegiance to Jesus. And then a month later, their dad uh, had a, vi a dream about Jesus and he himself got saved. I can't explain how that happens. I asked her to her face, how did Jesus speak to you? And she said, it wasn't an audible voice, but it wasn't like a voice in my head either. It was something altogether different. When her father said that Jesus was dressed uh, in, in clothes that were bright, she asked what color it was and if it was white. And he said, no, it was no color that I have ever seen before. All I can say is that it was bright. Mysterious, and, and what it shows us is God's sovereignty, that he is free to do what he wants in accordance to his purposes, his plans, and his character. But nonetheless, I don't care if it's the word of God preached through a preacher, or it's a dream while one is sleeping, or an audible voice that comes to one in the shower, or like Saul, a light from heaven shines around them, we cannot come to God unless he reveals himself to us. That's the gospel. Because the gospel is about God's intervention into our brokenness. It's about his reaching down into our life and revealing his incredible love toward us. Jesus himself said this in John chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Romans 10, verse 17, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, that Jesus said in, in the upper room discourse that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, that we believe that every time we preach the gospel, that the power of the gospel is empowered by the fact that we become conduits, and that's not just me, that is we, as a church, we preach Christ crucified, that's a central verse for Door of Hope as a community, that all of us, if we are truly born again and belong to Jesus Christ, have been commissioned uh, to become conduits by which he can reveal his living presence to others. It's very important for us to understand that. And so we have to believe that it's the spirit that's drawing Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent him draws him. He meant what he said. That we can't, as Luther said, our bondage, our, our, our will is in bondage to sin. It's, it, the freedom comes when the gospel sets us free. Jesus is the center of the gospel. He says, whoever the Son of Man sets free shall be free indeed. So it is received by revelation. It may not be received the way that Paul received it, and he was uniquely establishing his authority as a capital A apostle. That is in the unique sense that he was chosen as God's vessel to bring the gospel of Jesus to the Gentile world. 
in a very unique way that is unrepeatable. And this is what I would say in regards to a reception by revelation is that each person and every person here, this is the powerful thing about, about God revealing himself is he comes to each of us and he meets us in, uh, he meets us in, our, in, in, in a way that actually he can communicate to our personality. He loves each one of you as if you're the only ones to love. But it's the same gospel. And all of us have different testimonies, and the testimonies are unique, and they're vast, and they're, they're varied. But at, this, at the end of the day, they're also the same. Jesus Christ revealed that he died for me, that on the third day he rose from the dead, that when he died, he took my sins and brokenness into himself, and he made it his own, that he took the judgment that I deserve, and I have put my faith in him. Just know that your faith in him is because he had already initiated his work toward you and toward humanity because he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. We must balance God's sovereign, his free move toward sinful humanity in love because that's what his grace is about. It's absurd. It doesn't make sense. It, it, it doesn't align with anything in us because it's his nature to love and that's why he moves and that's why he reveals himself to us because he's a living personality that wants to be known as he knows. Secondly, we see that Paul is called by grace. So he sets up, he goes, I revealed, I received this revelation directly from Jesus. Now he's going to defend that statement as an apostle. And here he begins by giving his testimony. In verses 13 through 17, he starts in the first half by declaring his former life. And notice what he says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Uh, the rhetoric that Paul is using is really brilliant here because what is Paul fighting for? He is fighting for the gospel that he had given when the churches were first birthed. And that gospel was not the gospel plus Torah. It was the gospel of Jesus and faith in him alone and the transformation of the life by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so what Paul is doing is not only giving a testimony to what his life was like before Jesus, but he is also saying, if anyone was going to bring the Torah as something that is necessary for salvation, I would have been the person that would have done that. For I practice the Torah more faithfully than any of these false teachers. And he will continually set himself up against these false teachers, declaring his authority as the one who is speaking the truth because the gospel is at risk here, because they are on the verge of losing everything. Are you trying to perfect in the flesh what God has begun in the spirit? There is so much concern in his words here. But look what he says, his testimony. I, I love this, the, the power of personal testimony. Paul's stating two very important things. No one knows more about Torah than me. My reputation for Torah keeping preceded me, essentially. Number two, only God's personal intervention in his life could explain the transformation from who he was as a zealous Jewish leader to be a preacher of a Torah-free gospel. And so I, I like what John Barclay says about these verses. He says, 
that verse 13 and 14 indicate that what has reconstituted Paul's life is a divine act of grace without regard to his ethnicity, tradition, and excellence, and without regard to his former opposition to God. God's grace has moved toward an enemy of the gospel to show that his love is not based upon what we have done for him, but it is solely based upon what he has already done for us in Christ. And so Paul declares this testimony of, I was an enemy of the church. I was the one that was persecuting the church. I was the one who practiced Torah to its to, I, I crossed every T. I dotted every I. I didn't. I was so faithful in this. I was zealous for the law so much so that I came against the church because I believed it was a threat to God's way. But Jesus, and look what he says. Notice he spends very little time on his life before Jesus. Let me just give you an encouragement. Nothing worse than a testimony where the testimony spends more time on all the horrible things you did without Christ than on the awesomeness of who Jesus is and how he's transformed your life. Have you ever heard those testimonies? Like, I, I, <laughs> I remember being on tour uh, in telecast, and there, we were touring with a particular band, and I won't name them. I actually don't even remember their name. Uh, so the, but the lead singer started to give his testimony, and it, it was so long, but it had nothing to do with Jesus. It was like, and when I was eight, I was selling cocaine, and my mother was a prostitute. And then when I was 10, I, I was carrying guns to school. And I'm like, first of all, I'm like, there's no way this white boy is telling the truth right now. And secondly, uh, the, I mean, it was just like, it was so, he just was presenting himself as this inner city thug and like just on and on and on. And it was like, and then after like 10 minutes, it was finally yeah, and then Jesus saved me. And then he's like, went in the next song. I'm like, no, no, no. It's to be the opposite of that. Like, I lived a horrible life. I did horrible things. I took advantage of people. I was an enemy of the cross. And Jesus entered into my brokenness and, and transformed my life. And this is what my life has been like since. I mean, the life after Jesus. I, I, my life, I spent 26, 27 years without Jesus. There's so many, I'm not gonna list off all the horrible things that I did, but all I can tell you is that Jesus reached into my life as an enemy of the cross and saved me. And the power of this, Paul quickly moves from, and he's very, his testimony of his former life is serving a very particular purpose in, uh, in his word to the Galatian church. And look what he goes on to say. But when he had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem and those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, there are several things that I want us to see here. First of all, calling for Paul here contains both conversion as well as commission. Paul here emphasizes God's initiative and provenient grace in order to clarify the totality of God's intervention in his life. His transformation had nothing to do with his own action, nor was it conditioned by his previous worth. It was all grace. And Paul is utilizing uh, the Old Testament scriptures to show that he uh, was in the lineage of that Old Testament prophetic call as one who is given a word directly from God 
God to give to the people. In fact, if you look at Paul's words, but when he had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might what? Preach him among the Gentiles. What does that sound like? If you look at Isaiah chapter 49, uh, verse one, it says, the Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. In verses five and six, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Jeremiah chapter one, verse five, to the prophet Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. This is the Lord speaking to Jeremiah. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, what I want us to see here is the logic of election uh, that, is, that is found from cover to cover in the Bible. And the logic of election here is that God chose Paul not to the exclusion of others, which is often how we define election uh, in our Protestant Reformation thinking, uh, which is God chooses some and rejects others. That is not the way that election is primarily discussed or described in the scripture. That the election uh, has to do with God choosing Paul, not to the exclusion of others, but to include others through the witness of his chosen vessel. In other words, election is directly connected to his commission. I have chose you that through you I may reach all. I have chosen you, Jeremiah. Before you were even born, I had already picked you to be a vessel. Look, at it's directly connected to a task to bring salvation. My salvation, the message of my salvation to Isaiah, go back to Abraham. I chose you that through your seed, I may bless what? All nations. It's, it, the logic of election is played out. Even look at Jesus' own words to his disciples. You did not choose me. I chose you. But then what is his great commission in Matthew 28? Go, therefore, into all nations that I, that making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have taught you to observe. Go make disciples. Bring the gospel to the nations. Paul, I have chosen Paul. Look what he says, even in Acts chapter nine, verses 15 and 16, God speaking to Ananias, as recorded by Luke, but the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine. What? I chose him because I rejected others. Is that what God says here? No, he says, God says he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Even Israel itself, we are told in Exodus, Israel was chosen to be a nation of priests. It failed at that calling and became a nation with priests. It became about exclusivity, who was in and who was out. And what do we have in Jesus? Jesus comes and he fulfills the law that cannot be filled, fulfilled. He is the true Israel. He is the true chosen one. And so we have here Paul carrying on in this beautiful picture of the logic of election. We have done a disservice when we try to take a very complex and mysterious doctrine and try to harmonize faith and reason 
to, the, to its minutia because there are certain things I don't care who you are or how smart you are because really, really smart people have wrestled with this and it has created tremendous divisions in the church. I, I like what Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, said, pick a side and I'll argue it. Because there is a balance in Scripture of God's sovereignty, his freedom to do what he wants in accordance with his character, his plans, and his purposes, and human responsibility. I agree with Luther 100% that apart from God's divine initiative, we are enslaved, incapable of achieving our own salvation. But I reject the idea that everything we do and will do is determined and dictated by God in such a way that God becomes somehow responsible for our sin. It's problematic, it's unbiblical, and I think that we need to hold the mystery in tension. So, all I know is Tozer is right when he said, someday we will stand before God and we will discover that we were all heretics somewhere. Uh, so, let us believe the word of God. Let us wrestle with these things. It's important. But let it never get in the way. The moment you start thinking in term, election in terms of I'm in and they're out, you have missed the whole point. I have chosen him that through him I may bring the gospel to the world. That is what we need to understand. He chose you, which means he has commissioned you to be a witness to his good news. May we believe so tenaciously in Jesus' own words, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. I believe that. Will you believe that with me? And take your calling seriously. He has called you by grace into his salvation, his, a relationship with him that should be carried to the world. I love that. Look what else he says here. I did not immediately consult with anyone. I, and, and some translations say, I did not consult with flesh and blood. Uh, now, some have said, Paul is basically trying to say here that the message that he received was a direct revelation from Jesus Christ and not given to him by the Jerusalem council, essentially. I mean, he's really protecting uh, his authority as an apostle. But there's also, there's, I mean, we know that Ananias came and laid hands on him and prayed over him. Jesus revealed himself to Paul directly. We, we know that. What, what is Paul saying? Well, connect it with what's happening next. He says, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. One of the things that he is showing us, now this is a mysterious passage. Luke does not actually record uh, Paul's excursion into Arabia, this three years of kind of like his life in darkness or kind of, we don't know what exactly he was doing. There's debate that he was in prayer and solitude and just learning directly uh, from the Holy Spirit as he meditated on his deep understanding of the scriptures, which I think is probably true. Some, Martin Luther thinks that he was preaching the gospel, that he just was out preaching the gospel. I think that if we were to apply the, he did not confer with flesh and blood, I did not confer with flesh and blood, that it's very possible that he was spending time in solitude, getting to know his savior, because everything that Paul breathes and preaches is not an ideology, but a living relationship that we are meant to know Jesus, actually know him, know his presence. And the, and the message that Paul brought was, a, was the gospel, which is a restoration of relationship. And he himself spoke it with boldness and authority because he had that relational knowledge fully in place. Now, the power of this is that it speaks to the fact that when we are called by grace, we are called into a living relationship with Christ. 
and the danger that we all face. As Luther said, the true theologian is one who always knows how to separate law from gospel because our default setting is to create for ourselves laws to make ourselves feel better for the lack of relationship that's actually in place. But what we need to function from is that relational realization that comes through total daily surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit. And I love that Paul here is showing us a way that often is ignored within the church. And that is that each person must come to Christ on their own. Now, don't think that I'm saying that we are meant to live out our faith in isolation. This is not a call to become a desert father. This is a call to understand that every one of us need both time alone with God, listening to his voice, attuning our hearts and his minds to the still soft voice that is so crowded out in the current age in which we live, which naturally leaves us feeling empty, without relationship, and then we're clinging to whatever thing it is that we can to make ourselves feel better. And we don't want to live like practical atheists. We want to live like a people that actually walk with the living Christ, which means that you need to spend time alone with Jesus. I mean, the powerful thing for me on Sunday is like the ultimate experience in that. I get up usually between 3.30 and 4 a.m. on Sundays, and I have hours alone praying and thinking through the message that I've been meditating on all week and in preparing and just talking about, Lord, what do you want to say to your people? I try now to have my message done before Sunday morning so that I can pray about, Lord, what do you not want me to say to the people? Uh, and because I have unfortunately been cursed with the gift of monologue. And so that's not necessarily spirit-led communication. Uh, so, Lord, what do you want to say? And for me, Sunday morning is about, is about a time of prayer, and meditation, and just asking the Holy Spirit to reveal anything that I might have missed, and, and, to, and to humble myself, and to make sure that I've confessed sin, and to, and to recognize that I am representing the living King, that I am not given the task of giving new information, that I am called to continue to present the same Jesus that's been saving from the beginning of age, of the new age, and the new creation. But this is the gospel that we present. And I think that this is the issue that often falls upon believers in this current modern age is we do not know how to be alone with God. And it's something we have to know how to do. But look what Paul goes on to say. He says, listen, I didn't receive this, this knowledge from, from other teachers. I commune directly with Jesus Christ. And even this, even through the, the vehicle of teaching, and I think this is important for you as a church, I am not the conduit for you to Jesus nor is anyone else. John himself writes to the church that each one of you have been given the Holy Spirit, if indeed the Spirit's within you, to guide and to instruct you. Jesus said to the disciples in the upper room, I will give to you another helper, another teacher, who will bring to remembrance all that I have said. Now, it's true that within the context of community, God raises up teachers and preachers, and he utilizes those to help inform and to hopefully build into that relationship that's already in play. But you have been given the Holy Spirit who, is, who illuminates what is being said, helps you actually determine something that is not true versus true based upon your understanding of Scripture. But he cannot bring to remembrance, as I say again and again, what you have not first put in your head. Be a people of the word. Be a people that get alone with God and let him talk to you. Pray without ceasing, as Paul said, which just means talk with Jesus and let him speak to you. 
It's one of the beautiful things about my wife, Darcy. She is like the poster child for natural intimacy with Jesus, just journaling and, and intimately letting Jesus lead her through the scripture. She said that's the hardest thing about doing this reading plan is it, it's impacted her journaling time because she just loves to let the spirit lead her and, and speak to her. And she utilizes that time like a real relationship. It's just communion with Christ. Um, I could learn much from her about this, this simple way of just having intimacy with Christ. Uh, that's what we need to develop as a, as a community. And it plays deeply into our simplicity pillar and our cross pillar. Um, but look what, look what he goes on to, to say. Because yes, he, he's arguing, I have been given this authority as an apostle directly from Jesus. I have spent time alone with God and have got to know him. But notice it is confirmed. It's still connected to the apostolic witness, witness and it is confirmed by the community of faith. Notice what Paul says. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that is Peter, and remained with him 15 days. And in saying that, he is saying that Peter has commissioned me, has agreed with God's appointment of, apost of apostolic authority and has sent me to be a representative of the gospel to the Gentiles. But I saw no one of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. So he said, I've only spent time, he's not trying to overly downplay, but I think that these, and this is what a lot of scholars believe, is that these false teachers were coming in saying, Oh, Paul's just, he was just sent by these guys from Jerusalem to give this particular, he's like, no, this was a direct revelation of Jesus, and it, but it did receive its stamp of approval from the apostolic council in Jerusalem. But then look what he says, and when I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. And here, Paul invokes divine presence of God uh, who will judge and silence falsehood. He trusts God to authenticate the message in which he has preached. But then he goes on to say, then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that were in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Notice what Paul is doing here. He is saying that the church throughout these regions was identifying him, A, they're authenticating the, the very thing he said about his former life. He was not exaggerating that he was one who persecuted the church, an enemy of the church. But now they're saying he is one now preaching. What did they say? He, used to he, is, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Paul now is connecting that very message he re re uh, received directly from Christ to the same message that had been given to these other churches. In other words, there, there is a connectivity between the Christian communities around, around this region to the message that Paul is giving. He's not giving a new message. I, I love it. It reminds me of G.K. Chesterton when he writes in his introduction to orthodoxy. He said, I, with the utmost, utmost daring, set out to discover what no man had discovered before, only to discover I was 2,000 years late. We're not creating a new message. Paul is establishing his authority to be the one who proclaims this message to, uh, to the Gentile world. But he is also acknowledging, yes, I received it directly from Jesus, but it is in direct correspondence to the gospel that's exploded since Pentecost throughout the known world. He is carrying on that same gospel message for the gospel is presenting to the world the living Christ. To when 
when Paul writes, we preach Christ crucified, that plurality, he sees that as the church's responsibility. We introduce people to the king. That is what he has continued to do. Not the king plus Torah. Jesus, as is, <laughs> there's a book title this, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But the one who has God has everything. Our time alone with Jesus, and I just want to encourage you, our time alone with Jesus always pushes us back into community. Paul may have had three years of preparation, and really what were those preparation periods for? And I, I think that when we look at, look at that, I think of Tozer's own words that he says, if we would indeed know God in growing intimacy, we must go this way of renunciation. We must move into the lonely valleys of soul poverty and the abnegation of all things until we discovered that Jesus is the one thing that we need. And when we have him, we have everything. And when we have that message locked in and we have died to all of those, those self-realities uh, where we consistently lose sight of Christ because we are so busy pursuing the things of this world, it is when this world has grown strangely dim that we are able to enter into it in a meaningful way and bring the gospel that saves lives. And so Paul says here, he closes with, they glorified God because of me. They glorified God because the gospel was continuing. That God had taken an enemy of the church and turned his life so upside down and said, I will take this dissonant note of evil and I will weave it into my redemptive purposes. He's not responsible for the evil, but he is able to override it in his freedom and to actually bring about great good out of it. I have taken Paul. This is a story really about God's decision for Paul, that through Paul, he might bring the gospel of Jesus to the world. And this is why the gospel is received by divine revelation. God must intervene, that we are called and commissioned by his free grace, his sovereign grace. And it is confirmed in community as we live out our life together, witnessing to the beauty of who Jesus is. Amen?